Look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. I start with this haunting quote from Jesus. It's from Luke 18. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's kind of a really negative point of view. It's from Jesus. Jesus said this. He wants us to wonder, will, will he find faith uh, on the earth when he returns? Uh, I don't normally make uh, a, lot, a lot of comments about uh, current news because I, I just try to avoid a, a lot of unnecessary controversy. And I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to create any controversy, but I just think of a couple of comments on... Uh, it just seems like so much is happening in our world and uh, our, uh, the, the highest leaders in our government are being accused of some of the... Uh, you know, serious crimes, and and then this whole thing with the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope in Ireland uh, today, and and the report from uh, this situation in Pennsylvania on the priests abusing children. It's a it's a horrible thing, a horrible horrible thing, and it it does to me is a good context for this question that Jesus asks. You know, when I return. Will I find faith on the earth at all? You know, uh, it's a, the reality is the world is cursed, and we we live in a system. The Bible actually promises that things are not going to get better and better and better and better, and then on a sh- the shining perfect day, then Christ will come. In fact, it it says just the opposite. It says that things are going to get worse and worse and worse, uh, difficult times, dangerous times, and and then it's going to. As I read it, the, there's going to be massive judgments on the earth, and then Christ will return. Uh, so, not to comment specifically, but first of all, uh, Jesus was not um, foggy, uh, not unclear uh, uh, about children and how they should be treated, was he? Uh, in fact, he, he says some of the worst things you could possibly say uh, about a judgment. He says, Mark 9, 42, and it's, it's in, I think it's all the Gospels. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, not, a, not, a, not just a millstone, but a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, um, you know, that's not casual. That's saying this is a massive evil that shouldn't be covered up, shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be defended. It should be rooted out and uh, disciplined and punished in in the you know worst possible way you can imagine. Essentially, um, and and so that's point number one. The Bible's really clear on it. If we if we want to be biblical. We protect the children. Uh, that's the, a very, very, very high goal. I don't want to be grotesque, but actually I had a Navy diver talk to me about this verse one time, and he, he said that it's, it's really a horrendous idea because it would be, it'd be short, but it would be one of the most excruciating ways to die because you, wouldn't, you would think you would asphyxiate you know, from lack of oxygen, but he said before that actually happened, your, you know, your body would be be, you know, 
torn apart, I don't know in which way, maybe imploded, exploded, I don't know. I mean, it's not to be gross, or, but this is, this is a, you know, we're sort of, you know, this actually became an English phrase. I, was, I did a little research on it. You know how we tend to bring things into, you know, well, that's my millstone around my neck. You know, no, this isn't pretty. This isn't in no way something you would joke about. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two is that we have to acknowledge we are a Christian church. We're a part of Christendom, and from the world's point of view, there's not a lot of difference between one denomination and another. You know, from our point of view, we might think, oh, well, that's a different denomination, and there's some really clear reasons in that denomination why these things happen. Granted, that's probably true, but from a worldly point of view, they just say, they just white, you know, whitewash, that's not the right word, paint with a broad brush, that's what I want. We're, we're all Christians, and look, look at the way you treat kids. A few weeks ago, we sponsored a biblical sexual purity conference here, um, and I put it up on our Facebook page, and then paid 10 bucks to have it, uh, what's the word, boosted, I think, or something. <laughs> and it went out to so many thousands of people uh, all around us. And I, I got two feedbacks from it. One was, uh, you need to teach this to your priests first. Okay? And I sent back, I didn't mean to be snarky, and I don't think I was, I said, well, you're right. And uh, the Bible says we're all priests. <laughs> all Christians need to learn this and live by biblical sexual purity. Uh, and the other one was, uh, it was laced with four-letter words. Essentially, uh, you can keep your, uh, your sexual purity you know, and put it someplace that you don't want to put things. Okay, <laughs> you got the idea. We have two feedbacks <laughs> was... You, you Christians are all the same. You're big, big hypocrites. And secondly, your whole stance on, on morality is oppressive and wrong, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. So we have to acknowledge that. That's, that's, that's who, in apologetics, that's, that's whom we face, right? And the third thing, so the first thing is the Bible isn't neutral on this, and we, we need to treat it, um, you know, aggressively. And that's part of the reason the church, Roman Catholic Church, is so much big trouble for it, because they've been uh, recycling the same priests and, you know, horrible things. But anyway, secondly, we have to realize we're painted with the same brush, and we have to be aware of that. And thirdly, I think the psalm we read today talks about, you know, the enemy, and, and there's so much in the Bible about the enemy and Satan is clearly the enemy, and Satan would, would, would love to destroy you with this issue. He'd love to destroy me. He'd love to destroy all the leaders of the church. Uh, he, particularly leaders of the church are targeted, I believe, by Satan himself in any way possible. You know, he's not, he's not going to, if he doesn't work that sin doesn't work? Well, let's try this one, you know. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that we have an, an enemy. We don't live in a neutral territory. We live in a territory that is uh, dangerous. So what I'm saying is uh, we shouldn't feel smug. We should feel this is a cautionary tale. Lord, 
you know, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil uh, so that I would glorify you. So, you know, given, given these broad ideas that I'm throwing out here, um, transitioning to our text of Scripture and this idea that Jesus is being rejected, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? I want to read our text for today. It is Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And just, just 1 through 6, just a few verses uh, for us today together. Here is the word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not... Excuse me, let me read that again. And he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, please, in your kindness, open up this word and We do live in a world that's very easy to be discouraged in, and we pray for uh, your encouragement that the Spirit would encourage us to stronger faith and, and strategies how to live in this world, and that you would give us ways to answer our friends and relatives when they challenge us on these issues. Father, teach us today, encourage us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. All right. Now, having read the text, let's just work through it, just a few verses, and kind of uh, see what the highlights of this little passage are. Um, It says, he went from there and came to his hometown. It's not named, but it's Nazareth. And his disciples were following him. And notice that on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue. Uh, Jesus was a teacher. He loved to teach and preach, and he went right into the synagogue. He's been there before. And and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Now, this this verse uh, probably is sort of transitional. There seems to be some folks in the congregation that are really enjoying what he's saying. They're they're really into it. They're astonished and probably pleased. Uh, 
They're astonished, saying, where, where did this come from? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And notice the hands. He did, his, he did these work with his hands. Um, what mighty works? Well, just yesterday, it seemed, last week, I guess, we had him raising a little girl from death to life. She was dead. And he said, Talitha Kumi. Uh, literally said something sounding similar to that in Aramaic, uh, which means, little girl, arise. And it's a command, get up. And uh, it says, look at verse 41 of chapter 5, taking her by the hand. So in his hand, he does this mighty work. He says to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, this girl got up. And began walking. Those are the kind of things he's done. Earlier in the chapter, he healed this man who was uh, abs- chapter five, the first first part, which uh, Eugene preached on. There's this guy who has the legion of demons in him, uh, perhaps two thousand demons, and he's he's so bad he's chained up and he he breaks the chains and he lives in the graveyard and Jesus with one conversation heals him <laughs> it's fantastic he does mighty works where does he get these mighty works uh, but but now the text back to chapter 6 it starts to change a little bit doesn't it he's how, i love it. i think there's a transition here how how are such mighty works done by his hands is not this the carpenter no, a carpenter works by his hands, and he does some nice stuff. This was actually built by a carpenter uh, f- uh, that used to be a part of our church. He, uh, that's his hobby, you know, making things. Uh, you'll see we have several uh, podiums throughout the church that this one carpenter made by hand. Now, it's a great work, and it's wonderful. And Actually, this carpenter had put some of his projects into the county fair, and won first place, you know. Is that a, is that a blue ribbon? I think it might be. Um, it's amazing. It's really good. But it's not quite raising somebody from the dead, is it? I mean, it's good. It's real good. But uh, you can give me 10,000 of these in exchange for uh, one raising from the dead, actually many more than that, right? This is just a piece of wood. But taking somebody who's absolutely dead and raising them back to life is a mighty work. So this is the carpenter. And by, by the way, this is kind of interesting. This is the place in the Bible where he's called the carpenter. This is it. Uh, one other place, actually a parallel passage, other people were saying, is, is this not the carpenter's son? Okay. But if you wonder who was Jesus, what was he up until he was 30, he was a carpenter. And uh, some people want to say, well, what is that? Well, it, it really probably is somebody who works with wood. You know, contrary to that movie, he d- didn't make tables and chairs, okay? <laughs> As you see in that one movie, um, they didn't use tables. So, But, but he would make... There's actually, one of the early church fathers, his name is Justin Martyr, because he was martyred. And he, he was born at 100... A.D., and he lived to about 68, 168 A.D. 
So, and Jesus, of course, you know, uh, died around 30, 33 AD. So they, their lives didn't overlap, but, but Justin was a teacher. And he said, again, we don't know where he came up with this exactly, so it's just sort of like he said this. He said that Jesus made, made plows and yokes. Now, I don't know if he was yoking. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot resist really bad jokes. <laughs> and it's even conceivable that some of those plows or yokes still existed or that Justin had heard of it. We don't know exactly. But, you know, enter in here. You know, enter in. This text is acting as if Carpenter was a good job, but it's not outstanding. It's like, it's humble. It's, it's something sort of like what ordinary people do. Uh, he, is this not the carpenter? And then it's kind of interesting here in verse 3. Uh, he's the son of Mary. This is an unusual way of, of naming him. And I read many good commentaries on it, and nobody has it, the actual solution as to why. Why didn't he say son of Joseph? Even if Joseph was dead which he probably was at this time, the normal way of saying it would be, you know, I'm, I'm the son of Erwin. My dad's dead, but I'm still his son. And he, in the Middle Eastern culture, that would be the normal way of saying it. Um, it's just an, a, little, a little unusual. Mark is referring to him in this way. I, I guess I shouldn't say that. The crowd is referring to him in this way. Um, and it's probably probably insulting. Uh, they, they might even be making a slur about his legitimacy as a, a, a baby. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly. But anyway, just a little unusual. The son of Mary. And this is also interesting to us. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So he has all, all these brothers. Let's see, that's one, two, three, four. Two of them are, are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. And, and at this point, we know that they were not his fans. His own brothers were not in favor of him. Earlier on, they said, hey, he's out of his mind. And in fact, they, they tried to like grab him. You kind of have the sense of, get the, get the straitjacket. You know, We've got to get our embarrassing brother out of this situation and haul him off somewhere. Uh, and, and so they weren't his his fans at all. I think there's interesting, this is not the sermon, this is just observations of the text. It's interesting because we do know that uh, James, his brother, and Judas there, that, he's the guy who wrote the book called Jude in the Bible, and James is the gentleman who wrote the book of James, and they were, they were significant in the church. In other words, they came to Christ after uh, Christ rose from the dead, which is kind of beautiful because what, what? It shows that people change. These are people who are, they're so opposed to Jesus, they think he's crazy. They literally are trying to capture him to get him away from doing these crazy things. Uh, and, and yet, don't give up on them, right? God might have a future for them, even though right now they look like bona fide, full-on enemies, and they are, but they, they have a chance to change in, in the future, and they do. Again, two of them are named that way. And, and the grammar here actually totally indicates 
that these are, uh, you know, full-on brothers. They're probably born from Mary and Joseph, um, and they had they shared the same mother at least. They were brothers, and and he had sisters too. They aren't named here. Uh, we didn't. We don't know who they are. But then, then it really swings full on here in verse 3. It says, and they took offense at him. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But this is the, the Greek word scandal. They were scandalized by him, uh, which really means they, they tripped over him. They couldn't believe it. They would not believe who Jesus was. And they're turning against him full on. These are the... the the crowd, part of the crowd, the mixed crowd. And so verse four, and Jesus probably is quoting like a local proverb here. Uh, He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives and his own household. So he's claiming to be a prophet here, which is kind of interesting. He is a prophet, uh, but he's, and he should be honored but his own uh, people, he comes to his own hometown and they will not listen. He's in his own relatives. His own brothers and sisters are not honoring him and his own household is not honoring him. And, and then, then the, probably the most prickly part of this whole text uh, is it, it, it's designed by God to make us think deeply is this, it says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, which, you know, by the way, (laughs) those hands, (laughs) he still had uh, unlimited power and able to heal a few people. Uh, Mark wants us to to be reassured, you know, But, but there's power in this first part, because Jesus is fully God, and fully man. And so we're, we're designed by this text to be pushed to an uncomfortable place. This is what I mean. You can't put limitations on God. And it says he could, he was not able. He could do no mighty work there. And you say, wait, how, how could God be limited? How can you say that Jesus couldn't do it? And that's what this text says. And I think it's designed by the Holy Spirit to emphasize the power and the importance of faith. Uh, Verse 6, it says, and he marveled. This is also really provocative and interesting. It's the only time in the Bible that says Jesus marveled. He was amazed. Uh, There's another time that's kind of similar where he says he's amazed at somebody's faith because he was a Gentile. But here it says he, he marvels because of their unbelief. He's surprised. You know, all the evidence they've seen, all the evidence around them, and they know his mighty works. They, they, they're not even questioning that he did the mighty works. They're not denying it, right? They said his hands have done these mighty works, and he's teaching this great wisdom. And, and yet we know him, and we just keep, we can't figure this out, but we're going we're gonna to side on the side of skepticism. We're going to allow our, our skepticism to 
uh, turn us away from Jesus, and we, we just are not going to believe that. I, I will not believe that. You see, there's one theory uh, that exists. It, it would, and it's called universalism, which says that God's, God will just, at the end of the game, he's just going to save everybody. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter at the end how you actually lived. Because God, God is all love and compassion. This is what they think. He certainly wouldn't create a, a hell of torment for people who turn away from him. Uh, so he must have only have one place, a good place, a wonderful place for everybody. I, I kind of think Disney summed it up when he said, all dogs go to heaven. He didn't say that. Somebody else said that. But, you know, that's the idea. Everybody goes to heaven. You notice that when anybody dies, it doesn't matter who they are practically. It doesn't matter. You know, they're in a better place, and they were so good. They're certainly in heaven, and we look forward to seeing them there. It doesn't matter how they live their life. It doesn't matter about their confession. It doesn't matter what they believe. They can believe anything they want to believe. At the end of the day, we kind of want to believe. We kind of want to think they're, they're in heaven. They're okay. Okay. But the Bible does not support that point of view. You know? So you have to decide, are you going to believe the Bible and God's word or popular opinion? Uh, and I, I severely warn you that God's word is true. The Bible says, let every man be a liar. God is true. He's true. And here Jesus says, I mean, what this is saying is, He's not doing mighty works there because of their unbelief. He's, he's not going to save people who don't believe. If they're, if they're stuck in unbelief, he will not save them. And in a sense, you can say from this text, he can't save them because they're stuck in unbelief. Uh, that's what this text says, and it's designed by the Holy Spirit to make us uncomfortable. It's, the Bible doesn't always want us to be comfortable. Uh, I've, I listened, I should say I read a couple articles on this where the, the whole point of the article is to try to make us feel comfortable in this text. You know, let's explain why these words don't mean what they mean. Okay? Because my theology says this, and any time you make me uncomfortable in this box, <laughs> I'm going to call you a heretic. <laughs> okay? And that's just not true to the text. Uh, the, the command is, what does it say? Preach your interpretation of the word? Or does it say preach the word? Preach the word. So the Holy Spirit wants us to examine this reality that without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, so let me summarize what I'm trying to say and we'll, and we'll read some greater texts uh, to help us with that. I'm saying that here's Jesus teaching along. It's this interesting contrast, because if you look at chapter 1, verse 21 and 28, through 28, it's a different scenario. It's, a, it's the same idea of Jesus teaching in a synagogue. He's in Capernaum at this time. It says, and, and they went into, the, into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. See, very similar. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, similar approach, but a different outcome. In this case, you definitely have the feeling in chapter 1 that things came out that people were excited about him. This is really amazing. You should hear about this guy. We saw this demon-possessed guy uh, you know, assault him verbally, and he cast out the demon right there. He has amazing power. It's really interesting and good. Chapter 6 is different. We're, we're, build, we're foreshadowing to the end of the book, because what happens at the end? Jesus is crucified. He's going to be rejected by his own people, the Bible says. And here in Nazareth, the, his hometown, we see the foreshadowing of that coming. And I think it's interesting how quickly the tide of public opinion shifts, that you have a little look into mob psychology here, too, and, and how the leaders of a pack can change opinions quickly, because that's what you have here in chapter 6, I believe. Uh, they start asking these questions, and they build it up to the point where they're offended at him, and they are able to turn the crowd against him. He's getting some stony face stares, and people are just saying, well, I just don't know. I'm not convinced about this. I I don't think he is really all that he says he is. Now, I I want to take a a nice sort of fresh air moment, because this text is about faith. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And actually, I want to read uh, Galatians 2 as well. But Ephesians 2 talks about the condition of all of us as, as we are born, as we come into the world, and what it takes to save us. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Plug that into the introduction about uh, abusing children and the power of Satan in that situation. It says the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says we were all that way. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's just pause here for a second. Again, let's acknowledge that this is the Word of God. I, I, we believe the Word of God. And this is radically different than standard American popular opinion. 
the standard American popular opinion is that people are basically good. And we, I heard it out of the mouth of our president uh, within the last 14 days. You know, what it was, his campaign manager or somebody was uh, accused of massive crimes by amazing work done by our, our Justice Department. You know, proven with uh, thousands and thousands of documents that they, they went through. And he, you know, he seems to have committed some pretty serious crimes. Again, I'm not anything specific here. But our dear president gets up and says, well, wait a minute. He's a good guy. He's, he's a good guy. Good guys don't do these sorts of things. And I'm upset at my own Justice Department for accusing him of doing something wrong. Uh, to me, it's like, oh, please, you know, no. This is so not good. But it also represents this popular opinion that people are basically good. And the Bible is saying, you know, it's, it's sort of screaming it in a very powerful way. People, we are not basically good. You know, open your eyes. Um, uh, I, you know, the uh, senator who just died yesterday, uh, yeah, John McCain, uh, he said, in, and he was doing some campaign reform. You remember the McCain-Feingold bill? Is that what it's called? Anyway, he, he said, I heard him on the radio this morning, 2014, he, he thought that there was so much, he said, this is one of the most corrupt periods in American political history. In 2014, he said that uh, four years ago. You know, thank God we're behind that. You know, that's not the way it is anymore, right? No, I mean, to me, that was shocking. He's not just throwing that out. He really believes that. And how does that work? You know, we're the shining house on the hill. Uh, it works in this way. The Bible tells us that all human beings are corrupt and we're sinners and we need uh, salvation. That's the only way we get out of this. And that's what this is saying. He says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, it's one of those beautiful places where verse 4 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, but God, how, how are we saved? God. Well, what's his resume? He, uh, he's the one who made heaven and earth. It's a pretty good resume. He can do this. He has supernatural power to save us because the natural system will not save us. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us. Notice the verb tenses here. A believer is seated with Christ now in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. At some point we should say, hallelujah, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of the United States, and I love the United States. And I think we ought, we ought to be committed to making it better. So, right? But also, I'm a citizen of heaven where Christ reigns in perfection. Uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
It, it takes immeasurable riches of grace to save us. And he's lavished this upon us. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I call this power kindness. Because for us, a kindness is, would you like a glass of water? You you want a granola bar? Well, how kind of you. Thank you. That'd be very nice. This kindness (laughs) is, he saved my, my condemned soul. He paid off my moral debt, which was overpowering. And he he promises of me peace and life and joy and ecstasy forever in him. That's kindness! <laughs> you know, that's the kindness I want. Keep your glass of water and granola bar. I, I'd rather have God's kindness. <laughs> Riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And what's the next two words is why I read this? Through faith. None of this salvation comes to anyone who doesn't believe. It's not universal. I'm not questioning the infinite power of Christ to save or the infinite value of his blood, but all of salvation is limited to those who believe. And of course, we know that I was dead. I can't believe And so I can't say, look at me, I believed. I know that Christ raised me to life so that I can believe and gave me the gift of faith. And that's what he says next. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's that's salvation. This is the gospel. It's a gift of God. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Thank you. The, in one place in Scripture, it calls it the unspeakable gift. Nice. And again, verse 9. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's no question here, theologically, uh, that God is always the first cause, and God is the one who gives faith, and we're saved you know, by grace through faith, and that's not of ourselves. The whole, the whole thing is a gift. There's no question about that. But on the other hand, if we are people who decide that we just aren't going to believe and we're going to uh, turn away and give in to the skeptics, then we will miss out. We will not be saved. This, there's an urgency here. Uh, there's a cut and dry, a black and white. There's a need to believe. Uh, so I want to close then with just this idea that... Jesus marvels at, at their unbelief. He's, he's amazed. You know, this is you know, clearly sort of a humanization. He is human. Uh, he, 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 at one other time, uh, it says he looked over Jerusalem and, and cried. You know, he said, I wish I could have drawn you to me 
like a, a chicken, a mother hen draws her little tiny baby chicks and covers them and protects them. And there, what did he say? But you, remember that text? Would not. You chose not to do this. And so we all have an opportunity to believe or to not believe. And I, I wonder here, uh, where are we? Here is First uh, Peter 2, 7 through 8. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, Jesus is being rejected here by the builders of Israel. The leaders of their religion are rejecting Jesus. And that stone becomes the cornerstone of God's whole kingdom became the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. So that brings in the, the full sovereignty of God. It's the foundation of everything. Yet at the same time, the people, they are freely disobeying Jesus. They are freely not believing. They're not forced into not believing. They're choosing not to believe. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And here's Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I am, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. This is God saying, I'm putting a rock in the path for people to stumble over. He doesn't want you to overlook Jesus. He's right there. He says, and a rock of offense. See, these people were offended. They stumbled over Jesus. They wouldn't accept that this was the Savior. You know, this is an offensive idea that Jesus is the Savior. And what he did for us was what was necessary for us. A rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I'm just wondering here. Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. We can be in danger of not honoring Jesus. We can be in danger of unbelief. Let's not let, let's not make Jesus marvel at our unbelief. Notice though, at the same time, Jesus doesn't give up his mission. In spite of the opposition, he the final phrase is, and he went about teaching in the villages. Even when many rejected him, he didn't give up on his mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be confronted with unbelief in our own hearts and also in those uh, hearts of people we know and love and people uh, outside of our, our circle outside of our culture even, outside of our, our place where we live, that we will be concerned about their unbelief, knowing the results of unbelief. Help us to be like Jesus, to get out there and teach the gospel and proclaim the good news of salvation. Oh, Father, and in your kindness, open hearts, open our hearts to trust your word, to believe. In the name of Jesus, amen.